Well, hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest uh, cost chat between friends hosted by Practico. Um, as usual, you have uh, Laurel and Hardy in the form of uh, Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico and me, Jeremy Morgan, retired cost silk and consultant to Practico. And our guest today, we're delighted to welcome PJ Kirby QC, or KC, oh God, show my age. <laughs> um, of Gatehouse Chambers, um, a well-known cost specialist who shares with me um, the history of having been a solicitor before moving to the bar, and thus knowing far more than anyone else about costs uh, at the bar. Um, a brief uh, preamble about um, the recording of this. A recording will be available um, on the usual online uh, sites and a summary will be made available to those on Practico's mailing list. Um, that said, I just want to give you a brief preview of what we're going to be discussing. Um, the first thing is the recent Court of Appeal decision in Belsner and Cam. Now, those of you who know that this is a decision about um, RTA um, cases decided um, on the portal, but you do commercial law, don't run away. There's some interesting points in it for everybody. Um, there's a, an important discussion about the future of the Solicitors Act in a way, and about the distinction between contentious and non-contentious business. And PJ will be considering also the implications of this uh, decision for commercial cases. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a related case called Karatich um, about how you value a bill for the purpose of the Solicitors Act um, success or uh, failure. Um, we'll also look briefly at uh, an upcoming decision of the Court of Appeals, so we won't be able to say what's in it, but just to give you notice that there is a decision uh, due in the Court of Appeal before too long about whether a, um, a third-party funding agreement is in fact an unlawful uh, damages-based agreement. So it looks at the definitions um, of what is a damages-based agreement. Um, and uh, finally, uh, a thought expressed by um, Lord Justice Burse at a recent conference of cost lawyers, which is, should we do away with detailed assessment altogether? Um, something that causes panic among the three of us and many of our, our um, fellow colleagues, um, but hopefully won't come to pass. Anyway, um, over to PJ. Um, and starting off with the case of Bells now. Thanks, for, thanks very much, Jeremy. Um, just a couple of points on um, what you said. Uh, firstly, yes, I did used to be a solicitor, but when I came to the bar back in those days, they had the sort of old-fashioned senior clerk who said things like, in the days when they called you sir, um, and uh, he'd say, oh, sir, you used to be a solicitor, so you'll know all about costs. And I thought, well, no, I didn't, because someone else... Yeah, the cost it went off to um, Andy or someone else. Um, uh, but uh, that was my intro into the world of costs at the bar, just because I had been a sister. Um, the only other point I make just at the very beginning for dealing with Belsner is that the forthcoming case in regard to third party funding and whether they are DBAs is in fact the Supreme Court, not the uh, Court of oh, Appeal. Sorry. So um, uh, as high as we can go on that one. Um, yeah, so far as Belsner, um, one of those cases where no getting around it, I came second. Um, uh, in the Court of Appeal, uh, we were representing uh, Ms. Belsner, and uh, it was an appeal by the solicitors 
uh, arising out of costs claimed uh, under the portal. But uh, as Jeremy has said, there are points of uh, general importance, not just for portal claims. Uh, and um, this claim, which was for all of about 300 pounds, ended up taking uh, five days of the Court of Appeals time in front of the Master of the Rolls, the Chancellor, um, and uh, at the first two days of sitting Lord Justice Arnold, and then when we reconvened uh, in October, uh, Lord Justice Nugent. So as they say, a strong bench. Um, and uh, it was obviously a test case. Uh, and uh, what it was uh, testing um, was um, the somewhat, to some of us, obscure uh, section in the Solicitors Act, uh, Section 74.3 uh, of the Solicitors Act, and the extent to which costs in the county court would be limited to the sums that are payable by the other side. Now, as I said, I used to be a solicitor, but back in the 80s, I guess, um, I can't pretend that Section 74.3 was something that uh, I took great notice of when I was practicing in litigation in those days. Uh, and to some extent, it was emasculated by the fact that in those days there were scale costs, just showing how old uh, I am, uh, and uh, that therefore the costs that were recovered from the other side were, there was still a discretionary element. So they weren't fixed costs, they were within scale and you could go beyond the scale. Um, but what has uh, come about by reason of the introduction of fixed recoverable costs is that there is a fixed amount that is recovered uh, in certain actions. And that includes matters under the road traffic portal and road traffic accident portal. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, Section 74.3 would, on the face of it, limit the costs that you can recover from the other side to the, those fixed recoverable costs under the portal, unless, and this is by reason of the provisions of the CPR, unless there was a written agreement uh, between the solicitor and client, uh, allowing the solicitor to be paid more than the sums that were recovered under the portal. And so um, uh, the case got to the Court of Appeal by a fairly long route. Uh, there'd originally been an assessment of costs by the regional cost judge, uh, then gone on appeal to um, uh, Mr. Justice Lavender. Mr. Justice Lavender uh, had decided that um, the solicitors would be limited to the fixed recoverable costs, but his basis for deciding that was that he uh, uh, decided that the solicitor owed a fiduciary duty to the client to explain to the client that um, uh, the fixed recoverable costs in this case would only be 500 pounds. Uh, and uh, that if he hadn't, if the solicitor hadn't explained to the client uh, that uh, the cost that the solicitor was wanting to charge the client was significantly excess of that, uh, then that was a breach of his fiduciary duty to uh, the client. The Court of Appeal decided eventually, and I'll explain some of the history in a moment, uh, the Court of Appeal decided eventually that um, uh, fiduciary duty had nothing to do with it um, and uh, also decided that Section 74.3 had no application anyway um, because the Court of Appeal decided that uh, despite the fact you had to bring a claim within the portal, 
that did not amount to proceedings in the county court. And it was only if you got to what's called stage three of the uh, protocol that um, there were proceedings, because it was only then that you actually had to issue uh, a, a claim in the county court, as opposed to having to follow uh, the protocol. Um, now, the protocol is subject to certain provisions of the CPR. It's a procedure which, in effect, you've got to follow. Um, and, and is obviously a modern way of dealing with things. And indeed, the master of the roles is very keen on protocols and very keen on um, uh, sort of computerized um, uh, using IT with regard to the resolution of disputes. So he was very interested in this matter from the word go. Now, um, anyone who uh, has suffered from actually watching uh, these hearings, uh, both in February and October, um, and I dare say it's a good cure for insomnia, but anyone who's actually uh, watched the hearings will have noted a complete volte face on the part of the indications given by the Court of Appeal between February and October. In February, the Master of the Rolls was um, saying that this distinction between contentious and non-contentious costs was absurd. Um, if my opponent, who was Ben Williams, Casey, if Ben was right, then you know it, the whole thing had to had to change because this was just an absurd way of going about things. Um, the Chancellor raised a particular point, um, a point that I'd considered with my instructing sisters and thought was a bad point, but I thought, well, he's raised it, so we've got to go with that. Um, and then um, on day two of the hearing in February, uh, when, the, as I say, by that stage, the master roles had given certain indications which I thought had gone too far uh, and which were uh, unfairly uh, put to uh, Ben. And I was thinking, how am I going to deal with this when I'm on my feet? Because I can't actually support some of the things that uh, the master roles have been indicating. But day two, it would appear, following uh, further written submissions overnight and possibly following uh, discussions with Lord Justice Arnold, who had perhaps taken a slightly different view, um, the court came in and said that they'd realised that this had uh, far greater implications and far more importance than perhaps they'd first appreciated. Uh, and there were a number of issues that they wanted covered and could we go away and come back uh, later in the year, uh, which is what we did. And at that point, the Court of Appeals view was very different. Uh, and it was me who was on the receiving end of uh, certain difficult points that were being raised uh, by the Court of Appeal. Um, in, and uh, it, it's not done, by the way, to simply say, well, it wasn't my point in the first place. You raised this back in February. Um, that, that's probably not one of the best advocacy in the Court of Appeal. Um, so. What has the Court of Appeal actually decided in Belsner? Well, first of all, this distinction between contentious and non-contentious costs. Um, and the Court of Appeal uh, has decided what I guess was in fact the traditional position anyway, that unless and until proceedings are actually issued, um, you are dealing with non-contentious costs. Now that actually means that if you settle a matter before you've issued proceedings, uh, then uh, so far as uh, the costs between you and your client are concerned, that those should be assessed as non-contentious costs and not as contentious costs. What difference does that make, you ask? 
Uh, well, that's one of the things we're going to be finding out over the coming uh, weeks and months in the light of the decision in Wales. But the main difference is that under the solicitor's non-contentious remuneration order, uh, costs are assessed, um, they have to be fair and reasonable. It's not just reasonable, they have to be fair and reasonable. Now, that's an additional requirement to costs that have been assessed, which are contentious costs, which have to be reasonable. So I can envisage, well, I can certainly envisage plenty of arguments that the requirement for those costs to be fair uh, could mean uh, that you could have perfectly reasonable costs, which are nevertheless unfair. And that could bring in, for example, uh, the question of costs under a portal or, or where there is a case where, uh, where there is a matter that, that involves fixed recoverable costs. Because if, um, if you told, haven't told your client that uh, certain costs are not going to be recovered from the other side or have led your client to believe that um, most of those costs will be recovered, which indeed was the position under the CFA in Belsden. Uh, but at the end of the case, um, uh, you only recover a fixed amount, and that fixed amount was always known because it's set out in the, in the rules. Then whilst the costs that you've incurred may well have been reasonable, um, they may not be fair. Uh, I can hear some of you say, well, is that any different from um, the test effectively in, in Master Cigars, which is what is the sum that it's reasonable to expect the client to pay? And I, I can see that, that to some extent, this may be fair, may be an element of reasonableness anyway. Um, but that's where we are um, in the light of the uh, Court of Appeal decision. Um, unless you've actually issued a claim form, there are no proceedings. You're therefore dealing with non-contentious costs. Um, there is uh, a question mark as to whether, for instance, you can have a gross sum bill in relation to non-contentious costs or whether you have to have uh, a detailed bill. Um, uh, I'm not sure too many cost judges are going to give that argument too much um, uh, um, uh, weight, but uh, it's certainly something that's got to be determined. But there is also... Bear in mind, if you're dealing with litigation, and if you're, for instance, dealing with litigation under a CFA, um, and the matter is resolved before proceedings are issued, does that mean that that CFA is in fact a non-contentious business agreement? In which case, can the client challenge um, the recovery of costs under the non-contentious business agreement? Can, can this suggest that that non-contentious business agreement itself is unfair. So um, there are plenty of points that are going to arise in the light of um, the Court of Appeal's decision. Um, one of the other things, I mean, the Court of Appeal um, was critical of quite a number of uh, players in this matter, fortunately not me, but uh, was uh, critical, first of all, not a player, but of, of the Solicitors Act. Uh, the Solicitors Act and the distinction between contentious and non-contentious costs, the court bill said that's illogical, it needs updating. Um, the Solicitors Act itself needs updating. Um, it was critical of the solicitors who, who were the successful appellants in the case because what they had said to the client in the, in the CFA 
and in their um, client care letter, they had said, a case of your type will normally settle at this particular point. And if it settles at this particular point, we think your likely damages are going to be 2,000 pounds or 1,500 pounds, whatever it was. Um, and if it settles at, at that point, um, we would estimate that our costs would be 2,500 pounds plus value, plus disbursement. You've then got buried away in pages and pages of information, as we often see, uh, bits that say um, that you will be able to recover some, or uh, in some places it said most, if not all of your costs, or in other places it said, you know, the court will determine what uh, costs you should uh, recover from the other side. Um, nowhere do they say to the client that whilst we have estimated, well, whilst in our view, your case will probably settle at this particular point, you'll probably recover this particular amount of money. At no point do they say, and the costs at that point would be 500 pounds plus that. So you've given, they've given the net, uh, a cost estimate of 2,500, um, which is five times the amount of the fixed recoverable cost. And as it happens, the solicitors at the end of the case, what they, um, uh, the amount that they took from uh, the client's damages was the success fee based upon, if you like, the big bill, either the bill for 2,000 odd, um, uh, and that was then capped at 25% of uh, uh, the particular damages. Um, and so they deducted from her uh, damages a sum of 380 odd, I think it was, pounds. Um, whereas if they had had a success fee of 15%, because that is what they had uh, uh, agreed. Uh, would have to be the success fee. The CFA itself had claimed 100% success fee, but on the detailed assessment, they accepted in light of the case of Herbert, the most that they could probably get would be 15%. Had they only got 15% on the 500 pounds, then that would have been 75 pounds. So this is why we were arguing about a difference of 300 pounds, because the difference between 75 pounds and about 380 pounds. Um, and... Uh, uh, because of uh, the sum against which the success fee was to be calculated. So the do you think, were, can I just ask, yeah. do you think they'd have been better off if they hadn't given the client in the client care letter an estimate of their own costs at the stage the case was likely to settle? Because it was having done that, that their failure to say how much you might get back at that stage in inter-parties costs um, became absolutely a glaring contradiction. If they just said, oh, we can never tell in this case, we know, don't know when it'll settle and how much it'll cost, um, would they have been any better off? Well, of course, they'd be obliged in, in terms of their regulatory obligations to uh, provide the best information they could with regard to costs. And that's why the Court of Appeal was criticising them. Um, so they were, they were subject to considerable criticism because they were not giving best information mm -hmm. with regard to costs. Um, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it wouldn't have made any difference on the facts of this case because they did cap their costs at um, effectively the amount that was recovered from the other side, but by then calculating their success fee um, on the larger sum. Um, so um, it didn't really make um, any difference. 
I mean, I think I think to suggest that um, they'd be better off by not putting in um, the cost assessment. I think I think the Court of Appeal would still have said that they should have uh, um, told her what the sort of recoverable costs would be. Uh, and Jackson, of course, in his report, I mean, he actually actually said that, uh, or Justice Jackson actually said that, you know, one of the things you could, you should be able to say to the client is, well, here's, here's a grid. Um, you know, if you recover this, this is what you'll recover by way of costs. You know, if you recover this by way of damages, this is what you'll recover by, by way of costs. Uh, and that it's not that difficult uh, to do that. One of the arguments that have been raised, certainly before um, Mr. Justice Lavender, it wasn't really pursued uh, in the Court of Appeal, was that, oh, it's all too complicated. Um, but it's not actually all that complicated uh, to show what the um, figures would be. Um, I mean, the net, so, I mean, it wasn't just the solicitors who criticised my instructing solicitors who were check my legal fees, um, came under considerable uh, criticism. Um, but I mean, and in the words of Mandy Rice Davis, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? Um, I thought somewhat unfairly because their business model was criticised um, for bringing these claims, uh, which are all for modest amounts. Um, I, I think possibly the Master Rolls might have referred one point to trivial amounts. Well, um, whether an amount of money is trivial or, trivial or not rather depends upon how much money you have in the first place. Um, if you are a person who doesn't have very much money, um, uh, £300 uh, is not trivial. Uh, if you're someone who might be able to spend £300 going out for dinner, then perhaps it is trivial. Um, and I accept, obviously, that in the scheme of things, when you look at the legal costs involved, it may be trivial. But um, the solicitors who were bringing these claims, so check my legal fees who were bringing these claims, um, they were bringing them in the High Court, but there's a good reason for that, um, is that that was the only place they could bring them. Um, so uh, to criticise them for bringing the High Court seems to be a little unfair. The alternative, which is what the Court of Appeal suggested in both Belsner and, in a sense, in more, even more forceful terms, perhaps in Carriage, was that um, these matters were, could be brought more economically and more efficiently, um, in the legal ombudsman. Well, there was no actual evidence as to the legal ombudsman uh, ability or capability of uh, uh, dealing with these claims. Um, and uh, the prospect of um, the legal ombudsman now having hundreds of these sort of small claims uh, seems to me a little worrying because the legal ombudsman uh, record, which is published every year, in a report is not that great in terms of the timescales in which matters are dealt with. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that matters in relation to solicitors' costs <coughs> are not particularly straightforward. Dare I say it uh, in this recording? Yes, I dare. Um, that perhaps the Court of Appeals uh, views, which changed between February and October, themselves illustrate the fact that an understanding of solicitors' costs is not entirely common to the whole of the legal profession, let alone to unqualified persons who are going to be dealing with the original complaints uh, to the ombudsman. Um, 
I am aware of a recent matter where the Ombudsman um, appears to have uh, uh, refused a complaint with regard to an unwritten damages-based agreement. Well, you can't have an unwritten damages-based agreement. And yet a complaint with regard to that appears to be uh, dismissed, certainly before it's gone to the next level. Um, and so the Court of Appeal saying all these matters should go off to the um, uh, legal ombudsman. Um, uh, I am worried about that because I'm not sure that, that clients will actually get um, uh, a fair and proper consideration of their bills there. And this is, I mean, it's not as if this is a sort of new um, entitlement. I mean, the, the right of a, a, a solicitor, a right of a client rather, uh, to challenge their solicitor's bill uh, by way of what in the old days was called taxation and now assessment goes back literally hundreds of years. Um, and it was a way in which, you know, officers of, uh, officers of the court, where, where their bills were considered and because there was, you know, historically there was always consideration that the, the relationship between the sister and client was uh, uh, one that was subject to particular duties and particular concerns and a particular concern about undue influence, et cetera, that, that it was right that the client should have the right to, to uh, have the bill considered by um, a judge. And what appears to me to be one of the consequences of the Court of Appeals' decision in uh, uh, Belsner and indeed Carriage is that that right to have the bill considered by a judge um, has to some extent been lost. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, hasn't well, been, yeah, it hasn't been lost, but, but um, the Court of Appeal has suggested that you should first of all go off the legal on. But they also, I mean, in terms of sanction, it doesn't sound as though they thought they could say the court should refuse to accept these no. uh, applications for assessment on proportionality grounds. And that would be quite um, a major step to effectively undermine a uh, piece of primary legislation. But they did suggest that you wouldn't get your costs even if you were successful in doing so, therefore, uh, or thereby undermining the model of, of your uh, professional clients. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but just on that point, Jeremy, if you, um, uh, obviously primary legislation um, deals with the one-fifth rule. Um, and uh, so, in effect, it's the Court of Appeal saying, well, this, this is special circumstance. Yeah. Um, so, but where do the special circumstances kick in? Yeah, if it's a £300 bill, it it's, might be said, you know, it's, it's disproportionate to be how many proceedings. But, but um, you know, if you're having to bring the claim in the High Court because of, again, primary legislation, um, where do, where does, where's the cutoff point? Yeah, where, where's the point where you can say, yes, I, I can have my bill um, uh, considered by uh, you know, the SCCA? Is it £5,000? Is it £50,000? Is it £100,000? Um, bearing in mind you're in the High Court. Um, so they are, there is, there is certainly a, uh, what appears to be a, a restriction on, on clients' rights with regard to um, uh, challenging bill. Strictly speaking, the bits about legal ombudsman, et cetera, are obiter. But um, if you're a 
district judge sitting in your local county court, um, you're going to take very serious um, notice of, <coughs> of what the Master of the Rolls says, um, and quite rightly. Um, and clearly he, he said it because he wanted um, this to be the way in which these matters are dealt with in the future. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, also, also you've, got the, you've got the problem that um, if you go to the League Ombudsman, League Ombudsman makes a decision. It's not binding on the client unless the client accepts that. Well, if, as appears to be the case at the moment, cases before the League Ombudsman are taking up to a year, um, if the case is all about monies that have been deducted from an award of damages, um, that probably amounts to payment of the bill. Um, if it's one year on, you're too late to challenge the bill anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, when do you actually issue your claim? Do you, do you say to the Ombudsman, hurry up because I'm about to run out of time? Um, or are you effectively then stuck with the Ombudsman's decision? But um, as I, I mean, I may be wrong, but my recollection is that the Ombudsman is not strictly bound by, um, by legal to apply legal principles, but more sort of what's fair and reasonable in the view of the Ombudsman. Yeah, you're absolutely and, right. You're so that right, makes though. it even more complicated yeah. when you do, you know, have quite important legal issues at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also the ombudsman, um, as it happens, I think within about a week of the decision in in um, Belsner, uh, announced that, that they would now be in, imposing a one year period for the bringing of um, complaints. So um, as I say, if they're then taking, you know, ten months. 12 months, whatever, to, to decide matters. Um, assuming you bring your claim before the Ombudsman within um, uh, that year, the chances are that uh, um, you will be out of time if you then disagree with the Ombudsman's decision, you'd be out of time for them bringing a claim to the SCCA. Well, one should... other thing, sorry. sorry. I, I, was gonna, I was just gonna mention, because it seems to me it's, this is very important for all solicitors in whatever area of practice. Um, the Court of Appeal disagreed with Ms. Justice Lavender's um, uh, consideration of fiduciary duties. Um, and uh, the Court of Appeal made uh, quite clear that uh, obviously while solicitors do owe fiduciary duties to their client, they don't owe a fiduciary duty with regard to the negotiation of their uh, retainer. Well, obviously you could within the negotiation of a retainer in, imposed something that amounted to the sister receiving some sort of secret profit, and that would be breach of um, fiduciary and any other number of duties. But generally speaking, in negotiating the terms of the retainer, at that point, you don't owe uh, a fiduciary duty uh, to the client. And that was another reason why the appeal uh, was allowed. So the appeal was allowed primarily because the uh, Section 74 didn't apply anyway, um, because these were not proceedings in the county court, because they were non-contentious costs. Uh, but in any event, the basis upon which um, Ms. Justice Lavender had found in favour of the client uh, that the fiduciary duty was owed and that not to explain to the client the difference between the recoverable costs and the costs that, that uh, they would be charging um, was a breach of that duty. But say no such duty was in fact owed at the point of the negotiation of the uh, uh, retainer. That, that's actually the point I, I was going to say 
Um, it, it is a general application and, and really quite interesting. I don't think it's a totally novel point, but it's very useful to have it uh, spelled out yeah. in the recent and authoritative decision. Um, mm. But the idea that the client has no reasonable grounds to believe that the solicitor is not looking after his or her own interests at the point when they negotiate a retainer is actually rather an important point. Yeah, indeed. Indeed it is. Mm. Um, yeah, so we're all going off to the legal ombudsman now, and I hope they've recruited <laughs> lots of more people to help them sort out these matters. Um, but uh, uh, That's the other I, point, I, isn't it? Well, like, I how can, many I can have they got? Yeah, I mean, and the point you were making, Jeremy, about they're not actually obliged to uh, um, you know, follow strict legal principles. It's going to be very interesting. You know, are we going to get a judicial review of a legal ombudsman's decision? Um, or what's going to happen when a client says, I disagree with what the legal ombudsman has offered, um, and you then go off for uh, a Solicitor's Act uh, detailed assessment? Is the court at that point Presumably the court can't turn around and say, you should have gone to the legal ombudsman. Because mm. the client would say, well, I did go to the legal ombudsman. Um, I didn't like what he, he or she said. Um, and uh, that's why I've uh, now brought this matter. And the court- but you could also get, couldn't you, clients um, who are concerned about the costs of detailed assessment, going to see the legal ombudsman in the hope of a sort of nice, friendly, warm and cuddly decision from this nice person who doesn't apply too much legal principle to get the bill reduced to much larger uh, cases than these very uh, simple indeed. RTA portal ones. Indeed. Uh, and that's um, a bit of a scary thought for, for solicitors generally. Yeah, and um, I mean, one thing that the legal ombudsman, or uh, certainly other ombudsmen I have dealt with, um, yeah, they, they will also sometimes award £200, £300, £400 for you know, distress or, or um, uh, you know, the upset caused. Um, so um, it would be interesting to see whether they ended up being a tariff with regard to solicitors' costs of whatever nature, as you say, whether they're portal, whether they're commercial, whether family, or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so Belsner is probably not the end of the road, but it, it obviously has uh, um, dealt a, uh, a very significant blow to people like those who were instructing me who, who were seeking to challenge bills in that way. I can't ask you this question, but I will. Um, what is the future of their business model? <laughs> well, um, uh, they'd have to answer that themselves. But yeah. um, uh, according to the um, master of the roles, um, it can't carry on yeah. because that's effectively what he said. Um, yeah. And uh, I have no doubt that, not that I've been asked to advise on it, um, I've no doubt that they've read the judgment and taken advice of it or taken that into account. Yeah. But, but wouldn't it have always been a, um, isn't, it, isn't it just a, a step on the road to reform? I mean, it might yeah. take a long time to reform. But even the check my legal fees business model is that way too, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, the, if it's a call to action from government and those that advise them on legislation to tidy up and modernise the Solicitors Act, and while we're at it, have a more have a different way of resolving disputes between certainly an easier, a quicker and cheaper way of resolving disputes between solicitors and clients about their fees, then that's the that that's the work that needs to be done. And everything else is a bit, it goes into the pot, doesn't it? You know, including yeah. things like should the legal ombudsman get involved? Um, and, and, you know, once you've got a, um, 
well, if we ever get to the point where there is a, um, a simpler way of resolving these disputes, then the sort of um, cases that Check My Legal Fees would prosecute, they fall away anyway, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, obviously, in the light of the judgment in um, both uh, Belsner and Karadich, uh, yeah, the, the Court of Appeal made absolutely clear that, that the, the Solicitors Act needs um, reconsidering and needs amending or just completely reworking. Mm. Um, I mean, that has been said quite some time by you know, judges in the SCCA. Um, whether this government or the next government is going to have the time or the inclination to get involved in um, uh, the Solicitors Act and a, a complete rewriting of it remains to be seen. Um, I mean, they, they ought to because it is it is wholly illogical. It doesn't fit in with all the new portals they want to introduce in regard to all sorts of claims. Um, and yeah, it's not fit for current purpose because although it's the Solicitors Act 1974, 1974, believe it or not, is uh, 48 years ago, um, and uh, but the Solicitors Act itself was simply a um, repeat of the uh, earlier Solicitors Act, so that's why I said earlier it goes back hundreds of years, um, and a lot of it really hasn't hasn't changed in that period of time. Mm. I suppose one uh, risk of this decision is that if the Department of Justice took the hint and said, "All right, well, we do need to do something about um, reforming the Solicitors Act." There might be a whole carve out of lower value um, bills, trivial in the view of the view of the master of the roles, and say, "Well, they can be dealt with by the ombudsman." In fact, a whole lot of stuff might be referred to the ombudsman yeah. uh, under new powers, which would possibly be problematic for the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I've always, I'm not sure I've ever really got to the bottom of a sort of chicken and egg argument that. <coughs> has come up a few times on detailed assessment between the parties, which is that if there's the prospect of a, of a solicitor, of a, of a solicitor client or a client may be challenging what they don't like about their solicitor's fees, haven't they got to get rid of all of that before you have a between the parties assessment? When really the client wants to say, let's have the, let's, let's have the, let's have the, uh, I'll say that I'm, I'm kind of liable for it just to get us over the line of having a detailed assessment, and I'll make up my mind afterwards as to whether I'm going to have a go. And what happened? Yeah, I, I, I agree, Eddie. I've, I've, I've never actually really, I think Jeremy has, but I've, I've never really um, had to argue that because, uh, you know, if the indemnity principle bites, which of course it does, yeah. um, what, what does happen on a solicitor and client assessment if subsequently, um, the, the costs are assessed at a lower amount than the amount you even recovered. Exactly. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Um, I've had that discussion for sure. I've, I've had the discussion. I've never actually had, had, had the argument. Um, yeah. But uh, one day someone's going to have that and there'll be a problem. Yeah. Oh, and you decision. can have it separately about elements of, you know, success fees now that are not recoverable. You yeah. Know, that, that, that's irrelevant, you know. But, of course, it's not irrelevant if you... It's not, well, it is irrelevant, but it's irrelevant to, to, to between the parties' assessments now, isn't it? Yeah. For the most yeah. part. For the most yeah. part. We've still I got mean, it's interesting, after going back to Belsner, at the end of the case, obviously the Court of Appeal decided that 
the bill in any event had originally been assessed on the wrong basis because it had been assessed as if it was contentious business, yeah. whereas in fact it was non-contentious business. Yeah. The master roles then proceeded in his judgment to um, do an assessment um, of the bill, which funny enough came out at the amount that um, uh, the solicitors had um, uh, uh, received. Um, so he assessed the bill at the 500 pounds being the recoverable cost, but assessed the success fee, um, uh, again, based on the, the, the larger amount. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, we, we weren't gonna go off to the Supreme Court seeking to challenge the master rolls uh, summary assessment of those costs, but um, it does seem to me there's, there's a certain illogicality there, but- uh, I mean, it's he was acting as, as an ombudsman. Well, he was, <laughs> he was probably, it was probably in the light of the judgment doing the right thing, but um, uh, whether it's um, susceptible to uh, uh, criticism is. Uh, I mean, it struck me that it, it struck me that, and I mean, it's only speculation on my part, but the, the reason that, that the solicitors didn't pin their CFA on a on a CFA like sort of system or matrix yeah. or what have you. Uh, was in a way to keep their options open because if they knew about the success fee because they that, that they want to find a way of of keeping their options open to make sure that they can at least get 25% of the damages. Yeah, and, uh, and some yeah. uh, certain cynical people might think that under some of these CFAs um, that the particular hourly rates, etc., um, <coughs> are such that um, whatever... Uh, the outcome of the case um, and whatever stage it settles at, uh, mm. that uh, the solicitors will always, as a matter of course, um, receive 25% of the general damages and, and past specials. Um, and it will be capped at that, successfully will be capped at that, but it will always be there. We'll and you, all, yeah. you, you almost have, I mean, I have argued this, I think, um, you almost have a, in a sense, it's a disguised DBA. Um, so it's it's uh, effectively it's the the model of a lot of claimants solicitors of these small claims uh, is that they will limit their costs in effect to what is recovered from the other side, including disbursements plus twenty five percent of damages. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, but. You know, calculated by reference to a success fee based upon hourly rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, having having raised the spectre of DBAs, perhaps we should move on. I mean, yeah. Belsner is a very important case, um, and hopefully, we've demonstrated to the wider audience the um, the importance of it in in general terms. Um, but uh, there is a court of appeal. No, sorry, Supreme Court. Supreme Court. I've got this note here which says court of appeal. Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> is about to consider whether a third party funding agreement is in fact uh, an unlawful DBA. Um, can you tell us anything about that? I, I can tell know. you a bit about it. I'm actually in it. So, um, ah, I, well, yeah, yeah, hopefully I know a bit about it. <laughs> um, this, I, I mean, this is going from one extreme to the other in terms of size of case. So this is a multi, multi, multi million pound claim in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. So hundreds of millions of pounds worth of claim as opposed to you know, a thousand pound personal injury claim. Um, and uh, um, 
some of you may be aware that that in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, uh, in order to um, uh, get appointed as the representative for a group action, um, you have to show that you, you've got sufficient resources to pay your own uh, costs and that you've got sufficient resources to pay adverse costs if you're ordered to pay them. Uh, and in this particular case, um, I'm for uh, a, a number of buyers and hirers of trucks uh, who are bringing claims uh, against truck uh, manufacturers um, uh, for um, the alleged cartel uh, with regard to um, the prices at which the trucks are sold. And one of the truck companies has taken the point, not the others, but one of them, it's uh, PACAR, which is in fact DAF trucks, which you probably be familiar with on driving up and down the motorway, um, have taken the point that the claimants who are funded with a third-party funding agreement with one of the well-known um, third-party funders, a member of ALF, the Association of Education Funders, uh, that um, uh, a third-party funding agreement is in fact a damages-based agreement, because the argument is that when one uh, looks at the definition of litigation services, that it includes the provision of financial assistance um, in relation to the making of a claim. And a third-party funder, uh, I, we will accept in, in front of the Supreme Court, is obviously providing financial assistance in relation to um, the, the bringing of a claim. And so what Packard says, well, in which case you fall fairly and squarely within the definitions uh, of uh, litigation services and you fall fairly and squarely within the definition that is therefore cover, covered by the damages-based agreement regulations. Now, if that's the case, then the evidence on behalf of the Association of Litigation Funders is that all um, uh, litigation funding agreements by the major players for the last 15 years have all been contrary to the DBA regs uh, and would all fall within the definition of a, uh, a DBA. The, that the impacts of that on current litigation, not only in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, but large commercial litigation would be extraordinary because it would suddenly be found that the litigation funding agreements were unlawful unenforceable. Uh, what do you do about that, those litig those, uh, that litigation that's already completed where the clients have paid 30, 40, whatever percent to the funder uh, under an agreement which it would turn out was unenforceable? Um, uh, the argument was rejected by the Competition Appeal Tribunal as Justice uh, Roth was the chair of that. It was then rejected by and this may be where, where the confusion about the Court of Appeal came in, as uh, rejected by the Divisional Court, which was also sitting as the Court of Appeal if necessary, because there was an issue about the jurisdiction to hear an appeal on this point from the Competition Appeal Tribunal. They decided they didn't have jurisdiction as the Court of Appeal, but could deal with it as Divisional Court. They then gave a leapfrog certificate uh, to go straight to the uh, Supreme Court. Supreme Court, they didn't give permission, but a leapfrog certificate. Uh, the Supreme Court then took about 13 months to um, decide that it would give permission for the appeal. The appeal is going to be heard on the 16th of February. Um, 
and uh, the Association of Education Funders are intervening. There's uh, which the Consumers Association are wanting to intervene uh, just in writing. Uh, and uh, Professor Mulheron is wanting to intervene in writing because she and Nick Bacon, King's Council, who maybe you will be very familiar with, uh, she and Nick uh, drafted, proposed, amended DBA reg regulations, which in fact sought to put um, this argument uh, to bed uh, because it had been recognised that that um, this argument could be raised, albeit that she and other commentators had uh, described the argument as, as uh, hopeless. Um, but uh, the proposed um, DBA, amended DBA regs would have meant it was completely unarguable. Um, uh, the only trouble is, going back to the point we were talking earlier about amending the uh, Solicitors Act, yeah. um, Minister of Justice hasn't taken up these um, draft amended uh, regulations, which came out, I think, in October 2019. Um, and they still sit there, and indeed the indications are they're not going to introduce them. So but It's not, not only just now, because actually when the, reg, the DBA regs were in draft, um, it occurred to me that um, there was this possible argument, and you could sort it by clearer wording, and representations were made, I shan't say who by, but to, to the Ministry of Justice to amend the regulations to before they were even um, made into law to to get rid of that potential argument and um, ignored, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so now, you know, there is hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds mm. worth of funding um, out there in relation to current claims, and goodness knows how many hundreds of millions of pounds in relation to um, already determined uh, claims. Um, which is, you know, possibly um, all been done pursuant to unenforceable agreements. So, you might need a new sort of concept like they have in, in, in the European um, law of uh, an appellate decision which only takes effect in relation to the case before it and maybe future cases, but isn't backdated decisions which are very made, but that would be novel. Well, that would be very English novel. law. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, yeah. The skies will fall in, won't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, no pressure there then on that case. No, I'll be no. yeah. I'll, I'll be sleeping well on the night of the fifteenth of uh, February. <laughs> Maybe I'll go out for, for a belated Valentine's Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that's that's going to be that's going to be um, very interesting. Um, and um, the appellant's state, um, statement of cases, uh, written case. Yeah, is due on of all days the 22nd of December so that then gives us a great Christmas and New Year to uh, consider it before we have to respond to it we have been given a further seven days so we haven't got to do it by the 5th of January which is what we were originally required to do just got to do it by the 12th of January so no problem fantastic <laughs> yeah given that People always feel whatever time they're given, that ruins your Christmas anyway, even with another seven days, doesn't it? Well, uh, that, 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 that's right. Um, I mean, in fairness, I guess we know what their arguments are going to be. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, we're at the moment drafting bits of our written case, and hopefully it will be a bit of a cut and paste job after, over Christmas. Well, that will be a fascinating decision. It really will. Um, but moving on, <coughs> final point. 
as we contemplate the legal horizon is, um, are the days of detailed assessments numbered? Um, <laughs> they, they might be if Lord Justice Peirce has anything to do with it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Jeremy, you and I have been doing costs for quite a long time. Um, and you were obviously the, the godfather of um, uh, the law in relation to costs and um, the cost bar, very much so. In a bit of um, oh. <laughs> And um, you kind of think that, yeah, there was, there was a time when you, you could see in authorities your references to, to um, barristers arguing about costs as if it was you know, a bit of poo on the bottom of your shoe and really shouldn't be something that um, uh, barristers at the bar should be concerning itself with. Uh, I mean, the, my concern is, are we moving again to a situation where we really don't want to be troubled with these things about costs? Costs is not something that the bar should be doing. Costs is not something that should be taking up court's time. Um, uh, and yet, at the end of the case, a client who has incurred X thousand pounds worth of costs um, is going to want to recover as much of that X thousand as they can. Mm. Um, and will understandably feel that justice is not done if um, uh, they get X thousand divided by four, right? a quarter of X thousand. Um, mm. After all, the, um, the dispute may have been for uh, less than that. Now, obviously, I accept that costs often run away uh, in terms of the size, obviously, I accept that um, you know clients need to have some greater uh, idea about what it's going to cost them. Um, and but my concern is that we may be moving again to a situation where the courts are saying, <coughs> sort out your costs somewhere else, and, and don't darken our doors with these. Uh, uh, highfalutin arguments about um, costs and what they should be and what technical arguments they should be in relation to them. I completely um, agree. And I, I think um, one of the problems, and, and this is where Ripper Jackson was really good. He, he nailed this point and said, in so many cases, the costs are at least as much and very often more than the value of the underlying subject matter in a case. And you cannot just relegate um, that amount of money, that proportion, if you like, of the value of a case to five minutes at the end of, um, yeah. you know, at the end of a trial. Um, and, and if you then say, well, we'll make it 10 minutes and we'll summary assess the costs in those extra five minutes, um, you are not doing justice to anybody because you are um, removing any element of certainty um, that there is in, in the current position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder who, you know, I've read the you know, with all the caveats about, you know, we're only seeing a few selective quotes. I wasn't at the conference that he spoke at. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, he hasn't spoken to anybody who's given him a really good reason for thinking why it should stay as it is, um, you know, it, uh, or the difference between budgets and estimates and why there really is a difference. Well, I, I wonder who's been speaking to, really. Mm. Um, because uh, there are... Well, the one that sprang out at me is, well... well you're going back to arguments about whether there should be um, summary assessment as opposed to detailed assessment on the assumption that all cases end in a trial and there's going to be a judge at the end of it that's yeah. heard everything and is going to be able yeah. to make a decision. Well, the vast majority of people don't finish that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so, so where are you going to go? And 
I mean, I may be wrong on this, but the, the, the idea of whether you could just use um, the cost estimates that you give to your client as the cost budget for the case, well, normally they happen a lot earlier than they're required to for the purposes of budgeting. So yeah. I don't know whether you, I don't know whether that, whether that works. Now, I'm not saying status quo, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I think he was, um, he, he seemed to be training his sites quite a bit on the costs of detailed assessment of costs. But, okay. but such heavy. a small number of cases in any event go to do that. I mean, how many times have the three of us been at a detailed assessment where a sister, a well-experienced sister, will say, I've got to tell you, Peter, this is the first detailed assessment I've ever had. Now, I've, I've had that on a number of occasions from partners Absolutely. in city firms or, or indeed when they've come to me, they've said, I've never done a detailed assessment. Well, I don't criticise them for that. I congratulate them for that because they sort them out. They sort out yeah. the cost. So the mm. detailed assessment cases are few and far between in terms of the, obviously, the number of cases that are concluded. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know where we're going. Um, I mean, this is also that he, he raised this in front of the um, ACL. I think it was. Yeah. That was the yeah. conference yeah. speaking at. But he didn't have the nerve to raise it at um, Practico's breakfast meeting where he was a, a, um, a guest because he knew he that that was a weighty audience that would have shot him down. He just said he would have. Uh, well, yeah, he was, already, he was already getting some stick for, 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 for barristers making, ex-barristers making decisions about costs when they don't really know anything about it. He was... Uh, <laughs> If you recall, wasn't from but, but you see, this is—I mean, this, this is an old point, and it's still—it yeah. still really gets me. Which is, you know, back in the day, um, a lot of barristers would say, "Oh, I don't know anything about costs," as if that was something you know mm. they were almost is that something proud, to be proud about. Exactly. Proud yeah. of? Yeah. Well, no. If you're um, a barrister representing your client, you should know about costs. Um, and um, you should at least, at the very least, know the basics. But it's almost as if, you know, the, the current judiciary <coughs> are from that stable. Some of them are from that stable that said, well, I don't, I don't really know anything about costs. Costs is not something that I uh, ever deal with. Exactly. Um, I mean, and, and therefore haven't liked cost budgeting and now don't yeah. like the thought that yeah. um, the costs have to be assessed by some means or other. Yeah. I mean, it's moved down. I mean, there was a years ago the Supreme Court said we don't really want to be dealing with costs. The Court of Appeals is the place to deal with. Yeah. Them. Now the Court of Appeals say we don't want it either. You know, it's got to, it should be somewhere else. Um, and uh, and and really, you know, where does it go? It's um, ombudsman. Yeah, Obviously. well, sorry, yeah, I don't want to look back <laughs> to that particularly. Um, but no, and I think it, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Um, and I'm, I, you know, all around, I'm sure. Um, some people would be trying to look for their very smallest violins, you know, if they're going to be worrying about well, our, our futures. I understand. I understand all of that. But nevertheless, it, why don't they just um, accept that a lot of this is to do with the squeeze on judicial resource? And this is yeah. just this is just a part of that. Um, and it's horrendous. Not only are there, you know, several, you know, there's there's a big difference between the standard of um, of access to justice you get in the Rolls Building compared to local county court, and we've discussed that on previous um, mm -hmm. editions of this discussion as well. Um, uh, but but likewise, you know, they seem to uh, the, the snobbishness aspect of it 
that it's almost, you know, it's, it's a bit gauche to be talking about money. It seems to me to be just completely wrong. And I don't think that that's a very modern view either. No, no. no. I, I can understand um, uh, bringing in more fixed costs for certain levels of catering. Yeah. Uh, I, I can understand that. Um, and uh, I would have, for say larger cases, I would have thought budgeting has actually helped with regard to um, uh, dealing with costs at, at the end of the case. I mean, obviously that was intended to, and I would have thought, thought to a reasonable extent it has. Um, now, yeah, a lot of judges have not enjoyed doing cost budgeting. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you won't find many cases in the SCCO or anywhere else where parties have been particularly successful in, in saying that there should be a departure from the, from the cost budget. No, exactly. And, and also, you know, the, 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 you've only got to look at the number of, uh, uh, the number of detailed assessments that settle before they get to court as well. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the, the, in the wider world, people are getting on with resolving their disputes about costs um, in, a, well, in the commercial world in a proportionate way, because, you know, the, the ultimate clients have got no interest in spending money on no. matters of principle. No, um, no. At all. No, I mean, large, large um, uh, corporate disputes, commercial disputes. Um, I mean, they, they, <laughs> the solicitors there undoubtedly resolve the cost without it going off the detail assessment. Yes, yeah. exactly. Anyway, I think we can sum this up by saying, Lord Justice Burse, it may be some time before you get invited back for a bacon sandwich at Practico's <laughs> breakfast meetings. You may, get back, you, may, you may be invited back to be cross-examined. We can't finish without one thing, Jeremy. Oh, well, that's over to you then, Andy. Well, look, you've had it. You've I've I've heard that you had a, a very pleasant day out the other day. Um, so tell us all about it. And as they yeah. say, some football managers, you know, show us your medals. <laughs> they show us your well, medal. The, the the medal is actually yeah. I should have got it out. I'm sorry. It's uh, it's in the safe. Because it's so valuable. Um, now, this for those who, um, who are remotely interested in this, it's a great time to switch off for most of you. But uh, I got an MBE for the campaign that we fought for British citizens in Europe and European citizens in Britain after Brexit to try and uh, conserve our rights. Um, it probably suggests that we did a lousy job because if we didn't upset the government um, <laughs> enough... Um, so that they gave us MBEs and OB some of the others got OBEs. Um, we, we can't afford very hard. But um, I think we take it the other way, which is at least we had a uh, we had a very effective campaign and we engaged at the right level and used the right degree of um, assertiveness, but not going over the top to, to try and get the rights we did. But it was, uh, it was, a, it was a fascinating campaign and, and I think really important and there are still issues... Uh, Arising, as I told the king. Yeah, I'm sure he was interested. You're not allowed to talk about what I take it. You're not allowed to talk about your discussion with the king, are you? I don't. I don't know. I got a wonderful picture of me sort of gesticulating. You know, I live in Italy now, so the, the hands come into these things like this too. <laughs> but uh, no, it's a nice day. It's a lovely day. It's like I'm PJ. It's very just like taking silk. You know, everyone's yeah. nice to you. 
It's yeah. not often that everyone's nice to you in your life, but everyone is. And, and oh, I was okay. not alone. There were 90 people getting awards the same day, including, and I didn't see her, was Emma Raducanu. And I was really, um, really upset not to, to see her. But there you go. Oh, yeah. Well, congratulations, Jeremy. Well deserved. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on, on that note, anyway, I think that's uh, the last, last of these chats for this year. It will be. <coughs> and... Um, Oh, oh, sorry, I'm getting overcome by cuffs. <coughs> I hope everyone has a good Christmas break, apart from PJ, of course, who will be <laughs> deep in uh, submissions for the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, we wish you all very well and see you again next year. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.